Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm posting this podcast on Monday, April 13th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because the days seem to be blurring over these past few weeks. On Friday, March 27th, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S., in this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners, asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare, and how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily, so in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. Our guest this week is Dr. Chris Chen, who is the CEO of Chen Med. Dr. Chen is a board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine physician who received his training at the Cornell University in Manhattan, as well as the Harvard-affiliated Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. His professional story and the story of Chen Med is a remarkable one in the annals of American healthcare, a story of the compassionate redesign of healthcare for the older, the poorer, and the sicker. Chen Med began as a family-run risk-based medical practice, starting out with four practices in Florida, and now they have well over 60 practices in multiple states, and they continue to grow rapidly. You can hear a bit more about their story in a previous interview I recorded with Dr. Chen. It's episode number 38 from May 17th, 2018 on Creating a New Healthcare. In this interview, we'll discuss a number of topics, including how, when other primary and specialty care practices are losing tremendous amounts of revenue, cutting back in terms of hours and providers and staff during the COVID-19 pandemic, how is it that Chen Med is not only surviving, but they're actually thriving? Now, there are numerous concrete implications for U.S. healthcare that emerge from this conversation, and I urge you to listen in closely. So without further ado, Let's drop into this interview I just recorded a few days ago with Dr. Chris Chen. Chris, it's such a pleasure and such a privilege to be able to speak with you. I know you're super busy right now. I assume that so many of the listeners know who you are, but if you could just take a moment to reintroduce yourself and say a word about Chen Med before we dive into the conversation today. Thanks, Zev. Happy to be here. My name is Christopher Chen. I'm the CEO of Chen Med. Um, we are a primary care organization scattered across uh, about 15 cities. We take care of the old, the poor, and the sick. We give them concierge care, and we substantially reduce their hospitalization rates. So if you think about it, we're on the forefront of we're pioneering what is now called value-based care, and we've been doing it for about 30 years. And you're now teaching others how to do it and extending tremendous growth in your organization, as I understand it. That's right. We're really humbled by the amount of success that we've had in the, the multiple different geographies. And typically people have great health systems, but the ability to scale, meaning replicate those results in other geographies is not very common. And so as ChenMed has continued to grow, we discovered that our model does translate across multiple different geographies and different states. Uh, in fact, in so many cases, we're seeing better results than even the original ChenMed model that was uh, based in Florida. So we're really optimistic about our ability to scale and our ability to grow. And of course, we're extremely excited about partnering and inspiring others to take this journey towards what is now becoming more and more clear, a better way to uh, manage patients, reduce costs, improve health, and improve the patient experience. Let's jump into that with the first question. You have such a, a model of care that has been up until now so intense about the doctor-patient relationship, about the in-person relationship, about the amount of face-to-face -face time. I think it's unparalleled in terms of how much time your physicians, your providers, and staff are spending with your patients. And of course, it's a big part of the outcome that you're deriving from that in terms of health outcomes. And, and patient experience and satisfaction. With COVID-19, all that's changed. So how has COVID-19 changed the way you are currently delivering healthcare? So is that baseline, 
Um, we typically see our patients about once a month. And because we are you know, taking care of the old, the poor, and the sick, about 97, 98% of our visits are in the center. Only about 3% or so were done through telehealth, and it's telephonic. It's not really video. Our patients are too poor to have Wi-Fi or smartphones, or, of course, they're also seniors, so they're uh, a little bit slower adopters to technology. And so we were predominantly a clinic-based model, and the results that we've achieved have been in the clinic when we realized that the COVID-19 was coming and that social distancing was going to be a pivotal part of preventing uh, COVID-19, we also recognized that the old, the poor, and the sick, this population that we're taking care of is the most vulnerable population to COVID-19, and now more and more data is coming out to that effect. So we took social distancing and prevention outrageously seriously. Prior to cities experiencing the COVID-19, we actually pivoted from a 97% clinic-based model to a 90 to 95% telephonically-based model. And we did that in about one week. Now, our model is really um, nimble. Our, the people that work in the organization are really agile. Um, they're used to pioneering things. And so when I challenged them with this, when I showed them the data of how dangerous COVID-19 is to their patients, we all gathered together and we said, we're going to make this transition. We're going to do it in under a week. And we did. So our model today is basically during this COVID-19 period is in almost entirely telephonic. We will see urgent patients in the centers. They, are, they remain open. Or if patients are decompensating because our home-based model is not enough. And so we took our care teams that are clinic-based and we made them telephonic and home-based. And we rolled out this thing that's called H3, happy, healthy, and at home the H3 initiative that, that's followed by H3 guidelines. And, and here's what it looks like. It's really amazing how the folks within the organization have rallied. We can talk about technology as well. It played a huge enabling role in our transition and helping us achieve our H3 uh, initiatives. But here's what H3 guidelines really are. We took these, uh, these care teams. Every doctor is given about three staff members, uh, typically in the clinic-based model, care promoters, care facilitators, and care coordinators. And what we told them was, let's do everything telephonically, and then anything that we need to do, we need to go to their home, or if we have to keep them healthy, happy, and at home, whatever it takes, we will do. And so we basically opened up the checkbook. We created these guidelines, and we said, listen, we, we trust you. And as long as you're Medicare compliant, spend the money that you need to spend. No questions asked. Do what you need to do to help patients staying healthy, happy, and at home. So an example of that would be early on when toilet paper was scarce. We said, you know, hey, we don't want our seniors searching around for toilet paper. We should do that for those patients. As they're socially distancing, we don't want our patients to be um, to be lonely, so we may have to uh, drop by flowers or uh, do what we call love calls for every single patient, um, every week, every day, if necessary, if we think they're not doing well. So we allowed our staff and the care teams an overwhelming amount of flexibility as we implement this telephonically-based, home-based um, uh, model to prevent COVID and to manage our chronic conditions for our patients. I love H3, happy, healthy, and at home and these love calls you're talking about when you say open up the checkbook. So you're basically saying to your providers and their teams, spend what money you need to spend to avoid the social isolation, to keep them happy and engaged, to keep them healthy clinically, uh, you know, physically and psychologically, and, and then to keep them at home. And so I guess one question is, has there been an increase in the number of home visits that's been required? Oh, substantially. So, you know, we, we are a very tech-savvy organization. And so, you know, we are constantly getting pictures in real time of how people are innovating and helping people stay healthy, happy, and at home. I'll give you an example. One of the markets decided to create these care packages. And, and, they, and they put in these care packages, these boxes of 
of essentials that everything that a senior would need. I mean, obviously we started to learn and what seniors really were looking for and what they really needed. And so we created these care packages and we went from house to house and started, you know, uh, providing these care packages with these patients. We coupled that with the love calls. I mean, imagine now, you know, we have so many telephonically based people. And so, uh, you know, they're they're doing love calls like crazy. All the central people, we call it at the home office in Miami. We have, you know, it's close to about 500 of them. Uh, many of them are working from home as well. And we said, listen, if, if your job is needs to be done at the home office, but we have you working remotely and you want a way to help, get on the phone and do love calls. And so our touches, the number of touches in terms of the calls and the home-based calls, if you actually combine them all, is more than doubled. More than doubled. Um, the other thing, too, is that the, the spirit of the organization, you know, we are extremely selective. Uh, every single person that joins Chen Med, we put them through a battery of um, of, of testing um, that includes even psychological testing, and and we're looking for a particular personality, this really heavy mission-driven, highly agile personality. And so during the time of crisis, we're actually seeing these personalities that we've selected for really shine. Um, they are extremely protective. Um, they have a can-do personality. They are not panicking. I don't see them uh, leading with fear. It's actually, I'm, I, usually it's my job uh, as a leader to inspire my people, and I'm, I'm finding that I'm actually more often inspired by my own people and how they're reacting to this crisis. It's remarkable. You know, it's so wonderful to hear because you just wrote a blog about this, I think, in the last couple of days about the heroes, the primary care heroes. Again, in most of the time, it's the specialists that showcased and highlighted for the high-tech work that's being done in, in hospital systems. And here is the work of, you know, the everyday primary care physician and specialists who are, are doing all the preventive, proactive work. And this is the moment in time where that is the forefront because that's what we need. And, and to hear that they're shining in that way, it almost feels to me like this is a moment where we're actually seeing the importance of primary care and preventive care. Absolutely. I mean, this is our time to shine. I mean, think about ChenMed. ChenMed is a is a primary care organization that that takes care of the entire patient and specifically focuses on a population that is extremely vulnerable during this time. And we have been in the business of prevention for so long. And so during a time when cities are shutting down in terms of, you know, people staying inside and socially isolated, primary care practices, specialty offices, outpatient centers, they're shutting down. They're closed. They're not available. And so we are essentially their only hope. I mean, we've we've heard from seniors that said to us, uh, you know, we, we're, we're so happy that you guys have decided to stay open and you're able to be successful and continue to you know, maintain operations. And it's this model. It's the concept of, you know, we are under capitation. So we don't get our yeah. revenues from volume. And so even though patients are at home, we have the dollars and the, and the ability and the experience to go out and say, well, let's create something special. So to actually help prevent patients from getting COVID-19. Prior to COVID, we were trying to prevent patients from showing up at the hospital with heart failure, with, you know, heart attacks, strokes, you know, COPD exacerbations. Today, just add COVID to that list. It's just yet another catastrophic thing that we need to prevent our patients from getting. And what patients have told us is they're really, they're really afraid of going to the emergency room. And so if we weren't open, well, where else would they go if they had any type of decompensation? Our typical admission rate for our population is over 300 admits per thousand. That's, that's a big number. And, and that, that's going to continue with or without COVID. And so everything that we can do to help reduce that now, of course, ChedMed has been able to reduce that and we've published, you know, close to 50%. So if we're able to, you know, help patients avoid um, the hospital, we'll be able to do two things. Number one, um, we believe that we will be able to protect our patients from ultimately developing or getting COVID because a lot of, you know, I'm hearing stories from the emergency rooms in, in New York, they're literally overrun with COVID positive patients. And so we're going to be able to protect our patients from getting the COVID um, if we can prevent them from going to the emergency room through good preventative care and H3 guidelines and H3 initiatives. But also we can actually prevent these hospitals from, from being overrun. Um, right now, hospital systems, they are you know, keeping us alive. 
and you know, just I, I actually trained in in Manhattan. I did my cardiology fellowship there, and and so I had an opportunity to call some of my friends and who are still practicing in Manhattan today, and the stories are staggering. They they they're describing an environment that it's like wartime medicine, and there's you know there's pretty um, scary triage that's that's going on, and and there's an overwhelming amount of you know COVID positive patients, and healthcare workers are are you know, I don't want to use the word dropping like flies, but they are, and then infecting other patients as well. So, um, and so if we can decompress these systems and allow them to just really focus on the patients who really need this care and stop all this, you know, all the, all the things that are preventable from showing up at the emergency room, um, I, I believe that um, we can prevent these hospitals from being overwhelmed. We can allow them to focus on the people who really need it and, and also keep our patients alive. Yeah, no, that's so well said. And, you know, it's just interesting to hear and reflect on your model. You know, you've had for years a market reduction in ED visits and a market reduction in hospitalization as a result of your intense primary care model, which is based on a capitated system of payment. And I'd not really thought of this before, but, you know, one of the shifts, you mentioned the practices around you are closing and they are everywhere. They're, they're shutting down for lots of reasons. But the issue is this, is that in this time when they can't see people in person and do the clicks, you know, the fee-for-service payment model is falling apart and they're just, they don't have that revenue stream. And yes, we're trying to quickly supplement it with virtual care visits, but your model has been capitated. And your capitated model of payment has survived. In fact, one would argue it's thriving because it's designed for prevention. And so it works from a revenue payment perspective, from a financial perspective. It works from a COVID-19 pandemic perspective. And it works from a clinical outcomes perspective because you're doing what you've been doing all along, which is keeping people out of the EDs and out of multiple specialties out of the hospital. It's just a remarkable thing to reflect on. And I wonder if, you know, again, it's just something that we should for the future be thinking about more and more that this model that you've built, both the clinical model as well as the payment structure should be something that should be expanded to other primary care. What's your thought on that? Yeah, well, first of all, you're absolutely correct. You know, this capitated environment, what it allows you to do is it allows you to do two major things that are really critical, especially during the COVID time. It allows you to really focus on prevention. So you're not being paid for sick people. You're being paid to try to figure out ways to keep people healthy. But the second thing is you're actually afforded flexibility. You know, in a fee-for-service environment, people, they say, I, I'm not, I can't do things unless I can, you know, you know, have a code for it, right? Because you're, you're being paid for, for transactions. And so if there isn't a code or, or a payment structure for that particular con- transaction, well, th- then you're not going to get paid and you, and, and you can't afford to do it. In a truly capitated environment, I don't, I don't get paid for a love call. Well, what's the CPT code for a love call? Right. Um, if mm-hmm. I want to drop off toilet paper and use because I don't want to prevent my patient from, you know, drive around town and, and you know, looking at different, you know, grocery stores for, for toilet paper. How in the world am I, am I going to pay for that in a fever service environment? And so during this COVID time, we're having to be extremely creative and very resourceful. And so I can go tell my staff. Please go do what you need to do. We have a checkbook available for you as long as it's Medicare compliant. Do what you need to do. We trust you and no questions asked. You could not do that in a fee-for-service environment. Right. No, and it's so fascinating because this is uncovering, you know, some of the challenges and problems with fee-for-service payment. I mean, to your point, you cannot create a CPT code for caring, but you can do that in a capitated system, because it's part of the whole package of care. It, it's just, I've never, ever thought of it this way. And it's just remarkable to, and I think it's important. I think this is important to emphasize because as we come out of this error, and again, we, we may be in this for quite some time and it may resurge and come back and there's going to be second waves, which I want to talk to you about. But I think there's a lesson here that the resilient model of care is the model you've created and the resilient payment model in healthcare is the capitated one. I just think that we could easily gloss over that and not understand that. If you don't mind, I'd like to simplify a little bit. And, and just this is how we think about it internally here at ChenMed. The fee-for-service model, in our opinion, is mostly reactive. 
Okay, so that means once patients get really sick, you can treat them. It's a reactive model. Um, once you see a need, you got to go and petition the Medicare to, to create a code for it and get it paid for. That's actually happened during this COVID-19 period, right? How do we get telehealth paid for, right? And so it's a reactive model. It's always slightly behind. Our ChenMed capitated model is proactive. So you move from being being reactive to being proactive. So we are we're trying to get ahead of things. We're trying to get ahead of heart failure. We're trying to get ahead of COVID-19. And so that's the reason why that we were able to pivot to full telehealth long before any of our colleagues even thought about it. And we were able to do it very quickly. And we're doing the same thing right now as we are continuing to innovate in what our model will be. So when I opened up these H3, you know, you know, uh, guidelines and, and had an H3 response, I have care teams across the country innovating, trying to get ahead of what's coming now. So let me give you an example of something that we're thinking about, which is, again, just a, it's just this, this ChenMed capitated environment really allows us to do. So, you know, last week I had the opportunity to call a lot of friends of mine in New York City. And I, I just felt an aching in my heart. I, I was reading about what was happening. And so I started picking up the phone and I, and I, and I called the, you know, those folks that I trained with and the stories that they told me again were remarkable. Okay. Once I heard those stories, I, we went back to my, our COVID team. One of our leaders is actually the, uh, is an infectious disease specialist. We actually ran bioterrorism for the United States Air Force. So we're so lucky to have him. And so, but we started looking at all the different uh, cities that we're in. And, and I asked this question, I said, is there any indication, this was a week ago, that, that the other cities out there couldn't eventually look like New York City? Like, for example, New Orleans. Is there any indication that New Orleans wouldn't start to approach the environment that we're seeing in New York? And, and the answer we had was, you know, it, it's possible that they may not have a strong COVID sort of response or a strong COVID, you know, curve, um, but we're wise to be proactive and prepare in case that happens. And so this created this, we, we had a moral conundrum. Um, we really wanted to take care of our patients, continue to do what we're doing. But we realized that healthcare actually shuts down in these cities, except for COVID positive hospitals, trying their best to keep patients alive. You know, as we're recording this, you know, I was just looking at the, you know, in New York, close to 800 deaths in 24 hours. So this is what they're facing. And so um, we immediately mobilized and we said, how can we continue to be proactive? And so uh, the, the leadership, the clinical leadership in our organization said, during a time like this, when our, our friends who are working in hospital systems, who are at the absolute front line, um, in some cases sacrificing their lives, but certainly their time and their safety um, to really fight this you know, COVID virus, what's happening outside of the hospitals for everybody else who needs care and how do we prevent these hospitals from getting overrun? So when the front line breaks, what are we gonna do about that? And so the idea came up to say, well, why don't we go into some hero mode and we called it the humanitarian <laughs> emergency response for others. And so ChemMed right now, as uh, um, in fact uh, today, is looking at how in the world are we going to pivot our capitated model to, in addition to taking care of our patients virtually with these H3 guidelines, but what can we do for the community? What can we do for people who aren't TrendMed patients? And so we're evaluating that right now to try and help hospitals that could potentially get overrun. And of course, we would trigger that when we, when we felt that hospitals were in a position that you know, they're, they're really suffering, and we would try to step in to try to help them and partner with them in, in any way that we could. But some ideas that have come up are, let's just open up our doors to take care of all seniors for free in the community. We specialize on seniors. Um, our centers can do urgent care and some emergency care. They have x-ray capabilities and ultrasound capabilities and all these other capabilities. And so can we just open them up and just take care of our take care of people for free? We have the people here, we have the centers. And from a capitation perspective, we're we're still getting paid. And so that just think about the level of flexibility that allows us to really be be generous during a time when everybody else is trying to figure out how to survive. That's really helpful. You mentioned before that COVID-19 is differentially affecting 
the older population. And I think, you know, you take care of the poor, as you said. And so I'm curious as to, you know, how you see that, how you understand that to be the case and, and what you're seeing either from the data or from your own internal or external data that you're seeing. So about 95% of our patients are within 300% of the federal poverty line, anywhere from uh, 30 to 50% of our patients are dual eligibles. Um, and about 74% of our patients have made five or more major chronic conditions. So as you think about, um, you know, you know, COVID-19 and what population is really affected, it's really ours. I forgot to mention our average age is between 72 and 74 years old. Okay, so in every single study that you've seen from every other country, this is the worst population to get COVID and they're going to get hit the worst. Another data point about our population is that close to 50% or more of our population, every single city that we're in is African-American and about 70, roughly 70% of our patients are minorities. And so as we're seeing the data come out and we're, and we're looking at you know, all of our markets, we are seeing some negatively remarkable data. For example, Louisiana, we um, have uh, centers in New Orleans. Uh, in Louisiana, about 32% of the, of the population there is African-American, yet 70% of the people dying from COVID are African-Americans. 70%. That means staggering. Uh, we have uh, clinics in Chicago. About a third of folks that live in Chicago are African-American but about two thirds of the people dying from the coronavirus are African-Americans. And this is occurring you know, in, in all of our geographies where for some reason, um, yes, the COVID virus is extremely bad and dangerous for older folks. It is extremely bad and dangerous for people with multiple chronic conditions. Um, but we've also discovered that yes, it is also extremely bad for minorities, especially African-Americans and the, you know, in many cases, half, if not more, of our patient population are African-Americans. So we actually believe that our H3 guidelines and what we're doing to try to prevent our patients from getting the COVID, um, we're really looking forward to studying this um, as, you know, once we've gotten over the, the peak. And, and hopefully our strategies and our flexibility and our great teams have really made a big impact, at least in, in, in our patient populations and perhaps even beyond our patient populations because we may go from, you know, what we call the, uh, the H3 uh, status to and then moving into hero status where we take care of a broader population as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. In your panels, and you have much smaller panels, and so you really focus on each and every patient much more than the typical provider or primary care provider across the country taking care of, you know, Medicare patients or any patients for that matter. In that panel though, I know you have a lot of technology and a lot of data analytics. Are you proactively trying to figure out the sickest of the sick in your panel? And I know you've got, you know, high morbidity in the panel already, but how are you figuring out who of, let's say the 450 or 500 patients in a physician's panel, who to call up first? Is that part of your approach here right now? Absolutely. So we have an extremely robust analytics organization. I would venture to say, I think we may have the most sophisticated analytics organization for any um, primary care group in the United States. But we also have a software development company that is that, that, that creates our electronic medical record systems and all iPad apps and iPhone apps. And so the combination of those two things allows us to be very nimble. And boy, are they working overtime these days. Um, and they're working really, really hard. Um, at baseline, um, we absolutely do not treat our patients, our 400 patients, all the same. In the same way that we believe that our old, poor, sick patients represents that 5% of the population that accounts for, let's say, 50% of the costs, we're saying that same phenomenon occur within our 400 patients. So even within those 400 patients, which we believe are already in the top 5%, there's also top 5 or 10 or 15%. And so we do have different strategies for those patients as well. And we believe we've done a pretty nice job in being able to predict. I haven't seen any data anywhere, including in our organization, that you can predict beyond 80% accuracy. Um, so typically it's around 70 to 80% at best, um, but we're trying to get smarter about it and really predict who's gonna decompensate. We're right now turning that analytics organization to really solve for you know, markers that we can determine remotely. 
So, you know, we're, we're actually gathering data during these love calls and trying to really learn in real time, you know, what are the things that we could be hearing in these love calls? Remember, most of them are telephonic. They're not video-based because our patients can't afford smartphones and Wi-Fi. So what are the things that we can pick up that we can hear? Is there, is there something that's unique about that that allows us to predict and maybe they need more love calls? So th those are all things that, again, part of our DNA of our organization is that we're just nimble. And again, it's because of that capitated environment that really allows us to be creative and nimble. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, and let me ask you about that. So that's fascinating in terms of, you know, you're already starting with a Pareto in terms of the, the sickest and, and oldest and, and poorest patients. And now even within that, you're Paretoing and you're looking for the sickest and, you know, the ones that are most likely to, to get sick so that you could devote more of your resources. So how does that actually translate to once your analytics team say to a provider or provider team, hey, these are the people that you should be focusing on. So does that mean that let's say they get instead of the average of once a month visits, they get once a week visit or calls now? What kind of intensity do you put around the top five or 10% of each panel? So ChemMed's model is actually based on the concept of developing really close relationships with your patients. Okay? It's a relationship-driven model. And what we've discovered is that relationships are not built by intensity. They're built by frequency first. So as you think about this, you know, when we were young and you're dating, you know, you, you didn't see, to build a relationship, you didn't see somebody once a quarter or once every six months, right? Uh, when, when you're dating, you're, it's frequent visits. You're texting, you're calling, you're, you know, you're having a lot of dates. And so you know, you're trying to build that relationship up. This is the same thing. We're dating our patients. <laughs> We're really trying to get to know them. But the sicker you are, the more frequently we need to date you, the more frequently we need to get to know you. And so the, the analytics, the first thing that we do with the analytics is we allow that to dictate the frequency in which we see our patients. Uh, I've mentioned before, T typically, we see our patients monthly. That is a minimum in our organization. That is not a maximum. There are patients in our organization that we will see every day, every other day, certainly after discharge, um, perhaps once a week. And so what we've done is we've translated those same analytics and, and how we match that with frequency to our, to our virtual visits as well. We basically think that about 1.5 to 2 telephone visits is equivalent to one in-person visit. So we sort of do that math and we work in, in that process. We believe that only about a fifth, about 20% of a patient's health is really determined by their clinical care and their clinical you know, well-being. We think that the other 80% is really these other associated determinants of care and lifestyles and behaviors, uh, and of course, genetics. But today, at least, we don't have an immediate impact or we don't have a way to really change genetics. So we're really solving for associated determinants of health. And then the second one is really lifestyles and behaviors. And so uh, we're going to focus really heavily on those things. And we are interventions in those areas led by the PCP, by the way. You know, a lot of folks, they, they build these services that work in parallel with the PCP, and it actually creates a lack of coordination. And we find that that actually leads to worse outcomes. That's why I think a lot of these kind of add-on services, you have a lot of variability in the success. However, if you have the PCP quarterbacking all these additional services and interventions that go after, yes, amazing clinical care, but also their social determinants of health and trying to solve for improvements of lifestyles and behaviors, if you have the PCP quarterback that care through frequency, then you can actually get a better response here. So we're doing that in our annual meeting to help us do that. It's really interesting, as you're saying, the vast majority of the care is around social determinants of health as well as lifestyle and behavior. And what I hear you saying is that rather than have, you know, someone else, another team or a lower paid provider or ancillary service do that, you're saying, no, that's the role of the actual provider and their team. And so it's not enough for the doctor uh, to say, look, you have to lose weight or you, you know, do this or that. It's really about getting very, very specific and concrete. And so are your doctors really doing that kind of social determinant of health work, are they doing that lifestyle behavior work? So you, you brought up a couple of points. So the first one was this concept of a team. That's really unique. So our, our primary care doctors, we tell them they are in charge. We are a PCP-led organization, and we make that abundantly clear. And we think there are critical people that belong on the team that are experts, but the, every team should only have one leader. And every team needs a leader, <laughs> okay? So the way that healthcare works today is you just take a whole bunch of smart people and you stick them, actually, you don't even stick them in a room. 
you just say, hey, you all just contribute some way, and I'm sure we, you know, everybody's accountable, and, and, and a great outcome will come together. Is there any other organization, any other business, any other part of the world, any other industry in which you just take people and then you just expect them to deliver a great outcome without any leadership or coordination or accountability? You don't. And so that's essentially what's happened. And so what we do is we say, primary care doctor, you are the quarterback or you are the head of this team. Doesn't mean you know the most. You don't. Most of the time, the leaders don't know the most, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk to folks at Harvard Business School Award, and I'm sure in, 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 you know, in Management 101, you have to assign accountabilities. And, and usually the person who's you know, running the organization or running whatever that is, is usually not the expert. But in healthcare, we have the experts uh, who are usually leading, and, and they're usually leading in isolation. So we, we flip that over. We say, no. The primary care doctor, they're not the experts. They're going to lead the team. Everything goes through them, and they're going to lead the team and coordinate and everything, and and they will be accountable, above all, for the patient's outcome and well-being. Then what we do is we give them a care team, and that care team has different types of roles, and then we have specialists that actually partner with those uh, primary care doctors, but the primary care doctor is still ultimately responsible. They are still ultimately responsible. And then we then we layer on top of that additional services, whether it be, you know, case managers that will go to the patient's houses and social workers and um, or people that are looking for financial barriers to care. Um, so we have, you know, financial experts in the centers, you know, talking to patients and figuring out do they have financial barriers to care and how we can overcome that. Um, is my grandson stealing my Social Security check or my safe at home? These are all questions, but they go through services that are ultimately led and coordinated by the PCP and that team, that care team. In other organizations and healthcare systems across the country, there's you know care management teams that are not necessarily part of the integral team of the primary care, as you point out. So is that that you have those folks as integrated into the team with the primary care provider, as you say, who's the quarterback? Is the difference here in your model that they're just they're actually a tight team as opposed to being a call center somewhere or care management center centralized somewhere. Is that what you're saying? So, so there's two parts. There is a tight care team. That is a very tight mm-hmm. care team. That tight care mm-hmm. team will likely have some key specialists too as part of that care team. Then there's all these additional services as well. And those services, depending on the type of service, may be tighter or maybe not as tight. Certainly care, case managers and people that go to the homes and people that go to the hospitals, they, they are very tight with the PCP, very, very much so. You know, I, I just think that, uh, you know, enough cannot be said about this concept of having that point accountability. People who run successful businesses um, or successful organizations, they're always talking about who is ultimately accountable. Who is ultimately accountable? I remember when I was in um, medical school, um, we had a pretty good transplant program where we were. And I remember watching this transplant surgeon. This transplant surgeon was like the king. That the transplant surgeon felt like that he was responsible for everything, their diet, you know, uh, what happened to that patient at home, what was happening with the family. They were on top of everything. You know, when a patient gets a heart transplant, they are on it and, and they are in control of everything. doesn't mean that they're the best at everything. It just means that they ultimately are accountable. And that feeling of I'm in charge, let me be clear, I'm in charge. I am not the smartest. I need your help. And learning how to lead a team is something that each of our PCPs have to do and we teach them to do. So one of the things that we do for every one of our primary care uh, providers is we put them through comprehensive leadership training. And it's actually not the leadership training that you typically would get in a healthcare environment. It's actually leadership training that folks would either get in the military or in business school. And so we've taken that curriculum and we've crafted it and we've developed it and we've made it directly for the PCP. So that way we can look at a PCP and say, you are in charge of this team and you are in charge of this outcome. Okay. And then what we do is we then give them all these, you know, well, hold on. The first thing you do is you actually select properly. Okay. Not, not all people can lead. Okay. Now, the good news is primary care doctors, they have a lot of breadth. They can think very dynamically. They're not as myopic, so they're much more broad. They learn very quickly. So they, I'm really optimistic of what we're able to teach them. But selecting for the right people and the right personalities and the mindsets who want to be accountable and who want to practice in an environment where they, they are leading and they're rewarded for great results, that's the first thing we look at. Then what we do is we train them 
extensively. It takes us about um, nine months uh, to deprogram a primary care doctor from fee-for-service and then uh, refocus them um, and train them to deliver great value and great outcomes. When we train them, we also give them this amazing care team. We have the immediate care team, which is those three people that we talked about, and then we give them the extended care team, which is sort of the specialists, the case managers, the, the people that go in the homes, the people who are in the hospitals, the people in their acute care organizations and helping to manage patients and some key specialists. And that's the extended care team. And then we also give them enabling technology. And that enabling technology is designed by PCPs in collaboration with their software developers. So I remember grow, um, growing up in Boston, you know, growing up in the healthcare systems there, that's where I did my internship and residency. And they used to have this term called bench to the bedside, meaning you should be able to do basic science research and be able to bring it to the bedside and help it be relevant to how you're taking care of a patient. We actually developed something called the you know, development at the bedside where the, uh, primary care doctors are partnered with software developers in the exam room in many cases where they are saying, doctor, tell me what you need. See, the way that most people develop technology these days is let me, let me tell you what the organization needs and then we force doctors to adopt that technology. We took a very different approach. We took an approach of saying, well, doc, what do you need to deliver a superior outcome here? And then we'll help to code that into um, our workflows and our, and, and our technology. And that's basically the sort of the DNA, if you will, of how we do analytics and actually how we do software development in an organization. You know, I've heard this from you before, and we've talked a number of times, and this is really just amazing. It seems to me that this is the way that primary care should be developed and trained for and deployed and practiced. How do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to reframe and change healthcare in the future, particularly maybe in primary care? And how do you see? There's three things that are going to happen. I think number one, obviously, and this everybody talks about, I think telehealth will become a integral part of the healthcare delivery system. And it may even be the first line triage for how we manage patients going forward. So I think telehealth is relevant. It, uh, it was relevant before. It's go from relevant to potentially becoming even central to how we deliver healthcare to the broad populations. Um, so we're prepared to you know, incorporate telehealth very deeply into our organization when we go back to our original model uh, or go back to pre-COVID periods of time. And I think the rest of the healthcare will do the same. The second thing I think is this highlights the capitated models. I mean, as all other healthcare, although other primary care practices are really shutting down in these COVID run, you know, overrun cities, um, we're still open and we're able to help. And this is just highlights the fact that, you know, a, a different care model allows us to be a heck of a lot more flexible and agile. The third thing is the need to actually, for healthcare providers to be thinking about prevention. I think the data will come out that when this is all said and done, our patients are going to do much better than patients that were not ChubMed patients. And the, and the main reason is, is because we have a preventative mindset. And so the best way to treat COVID is to not get it. If old, poor, sick people get COVID, especially if they're African-Americans, they do very, very poorly. There's, there's, there's only so much you can do. You support them and you pray. That's basically what you're doing, right? Be, and you're doing that in mass right now. But, you know, we have another thing that we do. We do whatever it takes to prevent this, to help our patients stay healthy, happy, and at home. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, our model, it was relevant before, and, the, and there are many other great folks trying to pioneer these, these type of preventative value-based care, primary care models. Um, my, hands, my hat's off to them as well. I think they're doing great things as well. And I also know that there are, are systems out there uh, your organization, Atrium, is going deep into this concept of value-based care, and I'd like to congratulate you and other systems like Ohio Health and that are also doing things that are similar and, and really trying to figure out what's the right model of care that can be proactive rather than reactive to try to improve the health of patients. And during this period of time, this is a great opportunity to really highlight the benefits of getting proactive being flexible, having an accountable owner for patient health, and having this chance to shine in this really, really dark time.
as I hear you speak, I also think that embedded in your model is is a public health model. And that's one of the things that, you know, the pandemic has revealed that across the country, we just have not had a good public health system in place. And, you know, even forgetting about the pandemic itself, but just in general, in terms of prevention, you know, across our cities and in, in rural areas. And so I just think that embedded, in fact, in your H3 model, as well as your hero model, is a public health mindset, which you've been able to operationalize. I'm just curious about that. How does that sound to you? Yeah, absolutely. So in our mission, it is we honor seniors with affordable VIP care that delivers better health. We intentionally did not say better health care. And so many of the things that I'm describing, um, specifically even H3, that's not part of the clinical training that we had in medical school. And the answer is, it's not clinical training. It's not clinical. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. delivering better health. And in order to deliver better health, you actually have to think much more holistically. And so people who are in the world of public health, they're not thinking about pills, procedures, and referrals, which is, by the way, what you can bill for. They're actually thinking about the health and the well-being of the people. And so that is what ChenMed has the freedom to do. And that's why, you know, that I believe after COVID-19, I think mm-hmm. there's going to be an increased attention to how do we think about health rather than how do we think about only the clinical mm-hmm. care, which in my opinion, again, is only about 15 to 20% of the answer. And therefore, you know, having solutions that are only part of that 15 to 20% is really myopic and incomplete and won't give good results. Oh, well, so well said. Thank you so much. Is there any final words of encouragement that you just, you'd just like to share with us? Yeah, I just had one last you know, inspirational word. Um, uh, one of the things that, that I've been sharing within our organization is I personally believe that God has given us a spirit. And it's a spirit not of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of thinking through things with a sound mind. And I think having those components, that, that's what humanity is. Humanity, during this time of crisis, is going to show up or can show up with those three things. Power, great strength, great power and resilience. A lot of love, meaning that power being directed in the right way to help people, to make a difference. And number three, not doing it erratically. You know, not not doing it, you know, just panicked, but doing it with a sound mind and thinking things through. That's the best of humanity. Fear is not the best of humanity. Yeah, no, thank you for being so authentic and sharing, you know, your your deep thoughts and feelings and perspectives. And I can't thank you enough for really sharing with us, you know, how you built what you built and how your providers and your staff and your team work. I just want to express my gratitude to you and your providers and your teams for the work you do every day. And I'm hoping that increasingly we're going to see your model spread across the country and others learn from you and be inspired from you and benefit from you. So Chris, can't thank you enough. Thanks, Zeb. Stay safe. So folks, that was the interview I recorded just a few days ago with Dr. Chris Chen. There are numerous critically important implications for U.S. healthcare that emerge from this interview. What's clear from this conversation is that Chen Med has developed and honed a sophisticated, comprehensive model of care that is allowing it to thrive in the current pandemic, while most of the primary specialty care practices are struggling and faltering. What's also clear is that this model provides a VIP care experience for those with complex medical and psychosocial conditions and delivers health and cost outcomes that are superior to the vast majority of provider groups and hospital systems. What's most critical to take away from this conversation is the understanding that the capitated payment model that ChenMed has been built upon has allowed it to develop an unparalleled proactive, preventive, primary care approach that is resilient, innovative, and most importantly, vastly more relationship-centered and humanistic. What's also critical to take away from this conversation is the understanding that the predominant fee-for-service payment model in our country has decimated primary care, has led to severe disparities in care, and has limited greatly the ability of well-meaning professionals and staff to deliver the type of compassionate, competent care they want to. What I discovered during the course of this conversation 
is the fact that you can't put a CPT code on caring. And that, my friends, is the fundamental flaw with the fee-for-service payment model. An important lesson to be gleaned from this interview is that our predominant fee-for-service model has rendered our entire system of healthcare fragile, vulnerable, and inequitable, all of which have been revealed and exacerbated by the current pandemic. Now, translating these understandings into meaningful action is important. Healthcare leaders must, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic surge, address this issue of payment and push for a more rapid and complete conversion to capitated payment and global budgeting. This will not only serve our patients and our public health, but it will also allow providers and healthcare systems to be less vulnerable in the future. Now, this is not the only fix by any means. It's apparent that there are other fundamental shifts that need to occur, particularly in primary care, uh, such as reframes and shifts in the clinical care models in the use of virtual and digital health technologies, in the use of remote patient monitoring, in the use of data analytics and machine learning, and in the deployment of other less costly and more accessible approaches to healthcare. It's apparent that our business model and our operational approaches will need to be reframed and shifted as well in so many new and different ways. But payment is the fundamental but that has prevented us from unleashing the tremendous positive value that's been locked up in our healthcare system for the past many decades. If this pandemic has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that we must remove the fee-for-service but from our primary care and public health care lexicon. In the book, Reframing Healthcare, I wrote, it's clear that the current predominant system of payment provides a perverse incentive to do more. That is unnecessary, costly, and potentially harmful testing, procedures, hospitalizations, and surgeries. What's clear from this interview is that the fee-for-service mode of payment also provides a perverse incentive to do less, less caring and compassion, less proactive outreach, less prevention, less equitable care, less of all the right things we would want for ourselves, our families, our communities, and our patients. The need to transition out of fee-for-service should be, in my opinion, one of the first lessons discussed and one of the first set of responses deployed in the post-COVID-19 era. Now, as always, I hope you've benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. In these times especially, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself. And please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.